Okay, I'm going to jump right into the message today because we're continuing on this sermon series that we're doing through the summertime where we've been looking together through the life of King David. Now, to catch you up on the story where we're at so far, David has gone from this obscure shepherd boy, the runt of Jesse's family, to being anointed as the future king of Israel. He has defeated the Philistine champion, Goliath, in hand-to-hand combat and has now become the most famous man in all of Israel. David was unrivaled in his military ability. As a general for King Saul, he led Israel's army to defeat of the Philistines time and time again. But now all of this success, all of this meteoric rise of David is now beginning to catch Saul's attention. And that's where we begin today. 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9 says this, When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all of the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourine and cymbal. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, This song was apparently such a huge hit in its time period that three chapters later, in chapter 21, when David flees to Gath, a Philistine city, the Philistines are singing this song still. So it's an international hit, okay? They were singing this song in the streets. And so verse 8 goes on and says, This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said, They credit David with 10,000 and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. See, Saul is not used to sharing the spotlight with anyone, especially not some rooty-faced, beautiful-eyed teenage boy, right? To top all this off, as we heard last week, Saul's own son, Jonathan, has become best friends with David. They've become like better than bosom friends. They they have made uh, covenants and pacts together for their lives. Jonathan literally gave David the clothes off his back and his own sword. David and Jonathan are so close. And Saul made this promise that whoever defeated the Philistine champion was going to be able to marry one of his daughters, and he has to keep that promise. So now David is married into Saul's own family. He marries one of Saul's daughters, despite Saul's very best attempts at this point to actually use the marrying of his, to marriage to his daughter as a way, maybe I could get him killed in battle, and if I got him killed in battle, that would solve all of my problems. So he attempts multiple multiple times to send David into certain death situations, but David just keeps winning. They keep winning battles against unbelievable odds, and they just keep growing. David just keeps growing in his fame. 1 Samuel 18, 28-30. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name 
became very famous. So Saul's jealousy is now going to turn to madness. And Saul is going to make a decision to use all of his resources, all of his power as king of Israel to go after one man. And he doesn't keep this a secret. Saul even tells some of David's closest friends and advisors, including his son Jonathan, of his plan to have David killed. And so both Jonathan and his wife, uh, Michal, are going to actually risk their own lives to save David's life. And Jonathan and David end up coming up with this plan for David to escape away from Saul's anger. But when Saul finds out about this, he's not very happy. I had to choose the NIV to read this one because the language in this particular verse is rather strong in many of the other translations. So we'll read what it says. 1 Samuel 20, 30-34. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, <clears throat> You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now, send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Verse 32, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. He doesn't want to answer that, so instead, verse 33, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On the second day of the feast, he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. After Jonathan experiences, I mean, his dad has now tried to kill him, the heir to his throne. His, it's turned to madness. He's thrown a spear at his own son. So Jonathan goes out and they've arranged with David. He gives him the signal and David knows what the signal means and he takes off running. And this begins more than a decade of time that David is going to spend running from Saul as a fugitive on the run from space to space being pursued by the armies of Israel. And so what we're going to look at today is what did David do first? What did David do first when everything he planned, when everything in his life suddenly fell apart? Where did David go when his plans all came crashing down? Because you have to imagine up to this point, from the time that David was anointed with oil by the prophet to be the future king, to defeating a giant, to becoming a general, to marrying into the royal family, to having a permanent seat at the table in the palace, David has been on this meteoric rise, and all of a sudden, from the most famous man in the country, he becomes a fugitive. His whole life is stripped away from him in an instant. All of his land, all of his privilege, everything that he has gained is taken from him in an instant. And remember, it's completely unjust. David has done nothing wrong. He's only served Saul. He's only done what he's been asked to do. But regardless of that, now he's on the run. So what's David do first? When his life falls apart, when things don't go as expected, 1 Samuel 21 begins like this. Verse 1, David went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech the priest. 
Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone? He asked. Why is no one with you? So the first thing I want you to see, and if you have your note sheet in front of you and you're following along, I want you to underline or circle or put a star next to two uh, phrases here. He went to, underline that, he went to and to see. Star it, circle it, uh, put a box around it. Make it stand out on your page because this is important. When David's life fell apart, when everything came crashing down, when everything went unexpectedly, what did David do first? He went to, to see. He went to Nob to see Ahimelech. Now why? That's the question next. Why did he do this? Well, Nob was a town less than six miles away from Gibeah, where Saul had his fortress, where David would have fled away from. So he goes on this six-mile journey to arrive at this town, intentionally went to, to see, to the town of Nob. And we find out in the next chapter, the reason for this is Nob is actually known as a city of priests. We find out in the next chapter, under some pretty difficult circumstances, that there are more than 80 priests that live and reside in the town of Nob. The reason for that, the reason the priests are there, is because during David's time at this point, remember, the tabernacle, the place where God, where sacrifice was done, where the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord dwelt, that particular tabernacle at this time, it's believed, was in this city of Nob. And so what did David do when everything fell apart? What did David do when his life didn't go as expected? David ran to God's presence. That was his first stop. When everything fell apart, when everything was unfair, David ran towards God. And this is a life point. I want you to go ahead and write down as a, a note. It says this, when everything fell apart, David ran toward God. David ran toward God. When David didn't know what to do next, he ran towards the place in Israel that the manifest presence of God dwelled. He ran towards it. And let me just tell you, this wasn't a good strategic military decision. We find out later that the high priest had close connections with Saul. We find out later that there's other people around the tabernacle that have close connections with Saul. Saul's insiders are there. If you are running away from a mad king, the last thing you want to do is take off and run to one of the most visible public places in all of Israel. You want to take off and run straight to the wilderness. You go to the caves first. But where does David go first? He goes first to the place where God dwelt. And actually, here's the cool part about David's life. I told you this many times. We can get a glimpse of David's heart. We can get a glimpse of David's thinking because we can look at his songs. We can look at his poems. So here's what he wrote in Psalm 71, verse 1 through 6. O Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me and rescue me. For you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me and set me free. Be my rock of safety where I can always hide. Give the order to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. My God, rescue me from the power of the wicked, from the clutches of cruel oppressors. O oh Lord, you alone are my hope. I've trusted you, O oh Lord, from childhood. Yes, you've been with me from birth. From my mother's womb, you have cared for me. No wonder I'm always praising you. 
David says, God, you alone are my hope. And that's not just a saying for David. You see it practically playing out here. His only hope when he didn't know where to go, when he didn't know what to do, was to physically get himself into God's presence. He fled to and towards God. In fact, this is one of David's favorite topics. David maybe writes more about and sings more about God's protection than anything else in all the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with this imagery. God's my fortress. God's my shield. God's my refuge. Oh, God's my rock. God's my strength. God's my safety. In fact, there's one Psalm where he says all of those things in just two lines. Psalm 18, 1 through 6. And listen to the instruction for the choir director. This is the instructions for the director of the choir. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. So this is a song that he would have sang in the wilderness, and here he goes. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my savior and my God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. The ropes of death had entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help, and he heard me from his sanctuary. My cry to him reached his ears. This is exactly what David did. He ran, physically ran, to his rock, to his fortress, to his savior, to his shield. And just like he said in the song, when he cried out to the Lord, God heard him. And God responded. His cry reached God's ears. So I want to jump back to our story, 1 Samuel 21. Let's find out what happened and what David got when he ran into God's presence. What did David find when he ran to and towards God? Because remember, David had left in such a hurry that he didn't even pack food. He literally only had the clothes on his own back. He had nothing with him except what he was wearing. So now he's gone six miles. Now, I bumped into a friend who's running the triathlon in Salem today at the grocery store last night, and he was getting his groceries so that he could carbo load last night before the triathlon today, and he had a basket full of bread and spaghetti and all kinds of stuff. He had a plan because he had a long way to run. Well, David was going to run a long way, but he had no plan. Okay, So when David gets there, he's got a problem. So David asks Ahimelech, For some bread. 1 Samuel 21, verse 4 through 6. Well, we don't have any regular bread, the priest replied, but there is the holy bread, which you can have if your men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men to be with women when we're on campaign. And since they stay clean even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? Since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. Now, you need to understand something about this bread. 
This bread is extra special. And actually, the Bible has a lot to say about it. So we need to know what is this bread all about and what does the law have to say about it. Because this bread, this bread of the presence, this holy bread, was actually 12 large loaves of bread that represented each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was put into that place in the tabernacle later on in the temple. They did the same thing called the holy place. Now that's the area right outside the most holy place. So you have the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments are located. But just outside that curtain, you have a room in which this table has these 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the presence. They're also known as the show bread or the continual bread because it was a continual worship offering to God. And they were considered holy because they literally sat in a room that was directly adjacent to the manifest presence of God. Okay, so this bread was right there, right near the Holy of Holies. And God had given them instructions about this bread in Leviticus chapter 24 that actually said when these loaves were removed, they were only to be eaten by priests. So now, Ahimelech comes up with a solution to that problem. <coughs> he has compassion on David, who is hungry. <clears throat> and he gives him the bread. <clears throat> and that bread would have been enough, 12 loaves, <clears throat> large loaves, to feed him and anyone else that was going to join him in his party. But see, the priest also recognizes that because this bread is holy, <clears throat> because it's been set apart, he requires that David and his men remain are ceremonially clean in order to eat it. Now, I'm just going to give you a fair warning. If you want to get lost down a rabbit hole, commentaries on this section of Scripture, this is loaded, friends. And I spent hours down the rabbit hole this week and formed every possible opinion you can imagine about if this was sin on David's part for eating this bread. And, if, and let me just tell you, here's what I love about these verses. We don't have to guess we don't have to read all the commentaries to get <clears throat> the right interpretation because Jesus actually talks about this situation and circumstance and provides commentary for us in three of the four Gospels. Jesus teaches the Pharisees about Sabbath-keeping by telling this story. So let's go ahead and look at that together in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, because Jesus used this act of mercy <clears throat> by Ahimelech to teach the Pharisees something about the law that they didn't understand. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. About that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priest on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple. But you would not have... 
but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is the Lord. For the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. So what Jesus points out to the Pharisees is that their understanding of Sabbath laws had not been informed by the whole of God's law. And they had obscured even more important biblical priorities that were more important, like showing people mercy when they were in need in order to try to ritually follow the law, which was never intended to cause people who were in need to suffer harm. So Jesus used this occasion to teach them what the Sabbath was really about. And what Jesus tells him, I love the little end part. Jesus says, listen, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So what he's saying is my interpretation of Sabbath law actually trumps yours. My interpretation of Sabbath law is higher than yours because actually I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so when we go back to David's story, I want you to consider how amazing this event was for David. He goes to this uh, tabernacle and asks the priest, is there any bread that you have to spare? And he's not just given any regular bread. He's given the bread of the presence. He's given the show bread. He's given the holy bread. He's given the very best bread that anyone asking could have eaten. Bread he didn't even know he could have is what he was given. 1 Samuel 21, 8 through 9. David's going to ask his next question. He receives this amazing gift of the bread, and then he says, <clears throat> David asks Ahimelech, do you have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there is nothing else here. There's nothing like it, David replied. Give it to me. David goes in search for bread, and he's given the bread of the presence. David needs a weapon, and what is he provided? Goliath's sword. The last time we saw this sword, David had it placed in his own tent right after the battle when Goliath was defeated. So apparently at some point after that, David had this sword consecrated to the Lord. You have to think, a sword of Goliath is the ultimate battle trophy. To this day, soldiers hold on to mementos like swords. They're trophies for their victories. They're trophies for their battles. Nations would hang the swords of other nations' kings on the wall to represent what has taken place. And here David has the ultimate trophy, right? This is the trophy of trophies. Everyone's going to come to your house to see Goliath's sword. But what does he do? He has it given to the Lord. And now in his hour of need, when he needs help the most, what is David given? He's given the one weapon in all the world that would have immediately reminded him of God's faithfulness, that would immediately have reminded him of God's protection, 
that would have immediately reminded him of God's provision. Remember what David said out on the battlefield to Goliath? He said, today, Goliath, God is going to defeat you. God is going to deliver you into our hands. And now the priest gives him the one sword that would have reminded David that God was with him, God was faithful, and that God was his protector. He came in need of bread, and what did he get? The bread of the presence. He came in need of a weapon, and what did he get? Goliath's sword. This is so much more than what David could have asked for. This is so much more than what David would have imagined. David had run to God's presence, and he found a bunch of wonderful things. Here's two of them. In God's presence, David found provision and protection. In God's presence, David found provision and protection. Here's it in David's own words, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, fortress protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. Now listen, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek the most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in His temple. For He will conceal me there when trouble comes, he will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Do not leave me now. Don't abandon me. Oh God, my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O oh Lord. Lead me along the right path. For my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands. For they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath they threaten me with violence, yet I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. So the question is, when you are in trouble, when you need help, when you're afraid, when life doesn't go as you have planned or as you expected. Maybe in life, everything, when it falls apart. Where do you turn? Where do you go? Because David physically ran to the tabernacle, that place where the manifest presence of God dwelled. But the good news for you and I today, friends, is that we don't have to run to the physical tabernacle the way that David did. Because of the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, when he said it is finished and when he gave up his life, the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn, rended in two. 
meaning that the presence of God no longer dwelt in a temple made by human hands, but now the presence of God is available to us and for us for those who have called on the name of Jesus Christ and been saved. That means that when your life falls apart, that means that when you're in trouble, we, just as David did, can run towards God's presence. And since we know God's presence is everywhere, since we know God's presence no longer is in a temple, then the thing that we as Christians need to learn how to do is how do we become more aware of God's presence and how do we put ourselves into the place where God's presence is happening and moving. And so that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I just want to look quickly at several ways that you and I can dwell in God's presence can live our lives in God's presence, can run to and become more aware of God's presence. Here's the first one. This is really important. We become more aware of God's presence by creating space. You cannot become aware of God's presence unless you learn to quiet your soul. Dallas Willard famously said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. And see, the reality in the world in which we live, when your earbuds are in and your social media is notifying you and your Netflix is turned up in the background, it can become increasingly difficult to be aware of God's presence because we fill our life with so much noise. Noise, noise, noise. We surround ourselves in it to the extent that oftentimes it's hard to see or hear what God is saying. Mark 1.35 tells us this about Jesus' habits. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, why did Jesus choose a solitary place? It was simple. Jesus removed himself away from all of the distractions. He removed himself away from all of the busyness, all of the people, all of the need. He went away by himself. And you and I need to do this too. You need to find a way, a place that you can build a habit or a rhythm where you can be with the Lord in a place where you don't have everything else competing for your mind and your time. Number two, we become more aware of God's presence by obeying his word. This is a key spiritual principle that God makes himself known and reveals his presence in our lives as we walk towards him in obedience to his word. Jesus explains it like this. Listen to how clear this is. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me and the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and... Show myself to them. How cool is that? Jesus says he will show himself to us as we obey, as we walk towards him. You see, our actions, the Bible teaches, are an indication of where our heart really is. Our heart and our mind, we see the reality of where they really are by the stuff that we do. And so we need to be a people, friends, who are obedient to God, who are living according to His ways, who are living according to His Word. We don't get to make the rules. 
We have to obey God's commands and God's teaching. And as we do that, we are drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to Him. And as you draw nearer to Him, you experience His presence. Number three, we become more aware of God's presence by getting outside. Since God made everything, getting outside into nature is one of the things, maybe more than any other, for many of you in this room, that will help you to experience and become more aware of God's presence. Trees, winds, birds, animals, smell. How many times did Jesus teach us about the kingdom of God by, by relating it to things that he was looking at in nature? In fact, here's what David says about it. Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. God's creation is a wonderful way for you to draw near to the Lord and experience his presence and become aware of his presence. Here's number four, and this one may seem fairly obvious, but we need to talk about it. We become more aware of God's presence by talking to him. By talking to him. Now, I'm just going to tell you, a book that changed my life, probably the, the book that has affected my prayer life more than any other book than the Bible, is by Brother Lawrence. It's a book, a small book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And what he describes in this book is how we can turn our inner monologue, how we can turn that inner conversation that all of us have bouncing around inside of us into a two-way conversation, how we can take our inner monologue and make that a prayer, make that connected to the Lord. That's really that 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where Paul says, pray without ceasing. That's more than just to be in your room on your knees in prayer without ceasing. It's to be in a mindset of communication with God at all times. And if we would understand this, that God desires to talk to you, that God wants to hear from you. He wants to know how you're feeling. He wants to know what you're thinking. He wants to talk to you about how he's feeling and what he's thinking. God wants to communicate with you. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It's from the start of the Bible in Genesis all the way through to the end. God's desire is to have a family that he can have an open relationship with and that he can communicate openly with. But friends, it's easy to get busy. We go back to the first one. It's easy to lose sight of this. But God is asking us as we become more aware of his presence to be a people who are reliant on prayer who from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep have this ongoing conversation happening with God. Number five, the fifth way, the last way that we become more aware of God's presence is by worshiping Him. Band, you can come back up. It's right on cue. By worshiping Him. This is how David put it in Psalm 100. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. and We are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. So if worshiping 
And praising God is a way that we enter into his courts. Think about this as a, as a king. David was a king. He understood what the courts of a king were like. David said, we enter into God's presence with thanksgiving and with praise. Well, I can think of no better way to become aware of God's presence than by putting yourself intentionally into his courts, into the place where God dwells. You know what? I could do so many more. We could be like, hey, number six is by fellowshipping with other believers. Number seven is by serving in God's house. Number eight is by helping the poor and the marginalized. Number, we could just go because the reality is God's not hiding his presence from you. God wants you to find him. He wants you to experience him. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has made a way for you and I to experience the presence of God. He's made a way for the Holy Spirit to dwell in and through us. He's inviting you, friends. He's not keeping himself hidden. He's not keeping himself at the end of a quest to find. No, he says, here I am. Seek me and you'll find me. Search for me and you will find me. Here I stand at the door, knocking. Will you let me in? See, David said, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. You hear the Lord say this to you today. Lord says to you, Come and talk with me. Can you, can you hear him? Come and talk with me. And like David, I want to respond and say, here I come. Lord, I'm coming. Nothing would hold me back. Better is one day, one moment in your courts, in your presence, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather spend one instant, God, with you than everything else. See, friends, when everything falls apart, when things don't go as planned, where do you go first? So I want to encourage you today as we're going to sing together, we're going to worship the Lord. And I just want you to draw near to God now. God is saying to you, come and talk with me. So how will your heart respond today?